Well, I invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19. We are picking up this morning at verse 28. John 19, verse 28 to 37. Uh, you'll note verse 28 begins, uh, after this, uh, you, you might say, well, after what? Uh, after Jesus formed a community by giving the disciples to one another from the cross. That's what we looked at last week. Uh, so I'm going to read verses 28 to 37 this morning, give your attention to the reading of God's Word for His glory and for our good. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the Scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is born witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. In John's Gospel, we are up to the actual moment of Jesus' death. And we're just going to linger here at the foot of the cross this morning. Uh, it's a hard place. It's an ugly place. We want to run to the empty tomb and to the resurrection. Uh, but the cross is at the heart of our salvation. Uh, it's really also at the heart of the Christian life. Uh, I have a vivid memory from my first year of seminary. Uh, in my first systematic theology class, we were having a discussion about suffering and the sovereignty of God and one of the students was challenging the professor, as students are wont to do. Uh, well, what would you say to someone who lost a child or a spouse or was abused in some terrible way? How would you relate that to the sovereignty of God? Uh, and I remember very vividly the professor saying uh, that he would go with that person to the cross of Christ. And he would weep there and he would say, if God is sovereign in this... He is sovereign in everything. If God is sovereign in this, He is sovereign in everything. I think John wants us to see God's sovereignty in this moment of Jesus' death. Jesus has been unjustly arrested and tried and condemned and now crucified. And yet three times John says that what is happening is happening to fulfill 
the Scriptures. Uh, Pilate and the Romans are making their choices, they're making their decisions, but behind it is God, who in his wisdom and might is accomplishing his purposes already laid out in the Scriptures. How can we trust that God is sovereign and good and in control, even when things don't make sense? What do we do when in our own lives terrible things happen, things we can't connect to having a loving God who cares for us? Well, there are basically two options. Option one is to only trust God when his ways make sense to us. Only trust him when his goodness conforms to our expectations of what he should be doing. Option two is to come to the cross of Christ. The unjust death of the sinless Son of God. uh, What you could argue is the arch crime of human history. And to say, God, if you are working here, If you are bringing out of this terrible thing, salvation from sin and new life, then I can trust you in whatever you are doing in my life, even if it doesn't make sense to me and even if I don't understand it. Uh, So this is an important passage about what Jesus is doing for us, but it's also a kind of rubber-hits-the-road moment in the Christian life. It lets us have faith when things are hard. God is more powerful than people who are doing evil things. And he is more powerful than circumstances that seem to have gone all wrong. I don't have any points this morning. Like I said, I just want to linger here at the foot of the cross. I'll I'll walk through the passage a little bit and point out a few things. Uh, Starting with Jesus' uh, comment that he thirsts. Uh, I thirst is one of Jesus' famous last words from the cross. Uh, He's in the desert. He's hanging on a cross. It was a purposefully slow and painful way of putting someone to death. Of course, he thirsts. Uh, He's real humanity suffering on a cross, and we're seeing his agony. Uh, John tells us that Jesus said, I thirst to fulfill the scriptures He's thinking about Psalm 69, for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. He's also probably thinking about Psalm 22, which connects thirst and forsakenness. Uh, Jesus knows these scriptures. In his death, he is filling them out. No one is dragging him to the cross, kicking and screaming. He's there to fulfill the scriptures. What I want us to think about for a second, though, is how surprising these words are I thirst. If you go back to John chapter 4, Jesus met a Samaritan woman. They had a discussion about living water, water that you can drink and never be thirsty again. And Jesus said, I can command that water, which will well up inside a person. I, I give that water, which is an infinite supply of living water, To those who thirst. Uh, And then again in chapter 7, Jesus goes to the temple for the feast of Sukkot. At the key moment, he stands up and makes this declaration If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Again, Jesus describes himself as the source, as the fountainhead of living waters. And yet now from the cross, the one who invites us to come to him for living water cries out, I thirst. Uh, You might think to yourself, how can Jesus, who gives living water, be thirsty? Uh, Was he not telling the truth that he could produce all of this living water? I think John wants us to realize that what we're seeing right here, this is how Jesus supplies living water. He comes and he thirsts in our place. Uh, In Deuteronomy and the prophets, thirst is often a way of describing God's curse. Jesus is taking that for us. Uh, If you know the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, thirsting is a picture of the anguish of hell. And it is the thirsting Christ who produces living water. He comes and empties himself so we can be filled. When we say come and drink freely, come and drink without cost, it doesn't mean that there's no cost. He pays the cost to provide for us living water. Uh, And then Jesus receives the sour wine in accordance with Psalm 69, and he utters these other famous last words from the cross. It is finished. Uh, Note, Jesus does not say, I am finished. Game over, man. I'm cooked. He says, it is finished. It is completed, accomplished. I've done what I have come to do. So the question with it is finished is, what is it? What is the it that Jesus is referring to? Well, back in John chapter 4, When the disciples were urging Jesus to eat, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Same word as here in John chapter 19, teleao. Uh, In John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, Jesus prayed, I glorified you on earth, Father, having finished the work you gave me to do. Again, that same word, to finish. Uh, And now we see Jesus finishing the work right here in this moment where it looks like Jesus is defeated, uh, where it looks like Jesus is failing. He's announcing the successful accomplishment of his work. Uh, That's why John doesn't say, I always think it's interesting to note what John doesn't say or what a Bible author doesn't say. Uh, That's why John doesn't say Jesus slumped over and died. He says Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is his voluntary act. No one takes his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord, Jesus says in another place. It's his last act of perfect submission to God. Uh, Understand that it is by this submission... Not only to God, but also to an unjust death 
that you and I are brought into God's family. It's by Jesus' submission to God and to an unjust death that you and I are brought into God's family. Uh, It is shocking today to see the attitude of some Christians who don't want to submit to anything. Uh, Who are irritated and angered by the idea of submission. Uh, Submission is at the heart of our salvation. Jesus submits to an unjust death and we are brought into his kingdom. Uh, It is finished means all the work that is necessary for your salvation has been accomplished here by Jesus on the cross. Uh, I like this analogy. Imagine going to the Louvre and looking at one of the world's greatest paintings, one of the masterpieces of art, and saying to yourself, you know, this looks pretty good, but I'm just going to pull out my paintbrush and add a mustache to the Mona Lisa, and then she will be perfect. You did not finish the Mona Lisa. You defiled the Mona Lisa. And the reason is because it's already finished. You can't add to it. You can only detract from it. Uh, It's very hard for us to believe as sinners that Christ's work is actually finished. We think, surely we have to add to it in some way. Surely we have to complete it or we have to earn it or at least show why we deserve it. Uh, It's as if instead of saying from the cross, it is finished, we think Jesus said, I did my part. Now the rest is up to you. It is finished means we cannot add one single thing to the Lord's salvation in our life or the life of other people. Do you have to repent and believe? Of course you do. Do you have to walk in Christ as a disciple? Of course you do. Do you have to help other people do the same? Of course you do. All of that is the fruit of his work on the cross and our response to it. Listen to the way Hebrews 10 verse 14 puts it. By one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being made holy. We have been perfected by the one offering of Christ, but we're still being made holy. We are becoming in time more and more what his sacrifice has made us in heaven. We have to understand this or the whole Christian life gets out of kilter and distorted. Uh, It is finished means it's enough. Christ's sacrifice is enough to cover your sins. The ones you remember and the ones you don't, the ones you committed intentionally and the ones you committed unintentionally. Uh, Think about the mountain of sin over your whole lifetime, a, a Mount Everest of sin. And then picture the father looking at the sacrifice of the son and saying, that's enough to cover it. That's what Jesus means when he cries, it is finished. Uh, Then John gives significant space 
to what happens immediately after Jesus' death. Uh, seven verses, actually, uh, about it. The crucifixion was a bloody, shameful deterrent. The Roman practice was to leave the body on the cross. You want to let people see what happens if you defy Roman authority. Uh, this practice comes right into conflict with what the Torah says in Deuteronomy 21, if someone is hanged on a tree, don't leave them up all night because that would defile the land. And especially at Passover, one of the holiest times of the Jewish calendar, leaving a body up would certainly offend uh, the scriptural sensibilities. Uh, so certain Jews, it might be the leaders, it might be other people, where we really don't know, they come and ask the Romans to break the legs of the men being crucified. So remember uh, that in crucifixion, one of the things that likely would kill you is asphyxiation, a lack of oxygen. There would be a little step beneath your feet uh, where you could sort of push yourself up, get some additional air, prolong your life, prolong your suffering, show everyone just what a horrible death uh, a criminal would die. And by breaking a crucified person's legs, you were speeding up the process and maybe mercifully making it possible for them to die more quickly. When they get to Jesus, he's already dead, and, then in, and so they don't break his legs. And then in an act of gratuitous violence, someone pierces Jesus' side and John, who is held back on all the gory details of the crucifixion, you know, nothing about uh, the flogging, nothing about the nailing, nothing about uh, the suffering. John, who's held back on all of the gory details, now tells us about blood and water that flow from Jesus' side. Uh, a lot of people debate here medically what is happening. I think it's clear John is recording this for other reasons. Uh, that's why he makes uh, that sort of extended comment uh, in verses 35, uh, in verse 35, that the one who has borne witness to this is true so that you may believe. There's something theological in what's happening here. And I think it's this. Blood and water are both significant images in John's gospel, blood refers to Jesus' sacrificial and redemptive death. You can look at John chapter 6 and see that. Uh, water has repeatedly appeared as the gift of the Spirit and of new life. You might think about Jesus' words to Nicodemus, that one has to be born of water and the Spirit in order to enter into the kingdom of God. So John is not just showing us by water and blood the physical reality of Jesus' death. He's showing us that out of Jesus' death, out of Jesus' pierced side, flows both cleansing and new life. Cleansing because the blood washes us. New life because the Spirit transforms us. And that's why John points us to Exodus 12 about the Passover lamb not having any of its bones broken. It's the lamb uh, that cleanses. And then John also points to Zechariah chapter 12, looking on him whom they have pierced, uh, a passage that goes on uh, to talk about a day when God will open up a fountain for sin and living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. 
Uh, Here's the way one commentator puts it. The soldier's lance thrust was meant to demonstrate that Jesus was dead. But the affirmation of his death is paradoxically the beginning of life. Uh, That's what Jesus' death is. It's the beginning of life. That's the fruit of it. I think this is the point here. Jesus' suffering is not without fruit. Jesus' suffering is not without purpose. All the fruit that Jesus bears comes from this moment right here. All the sinners forgiven, all the lives transformed, all the deeds and acts of mercy done in his name. All that fruit comes because Jesus dies. Uh, To go back to what I said at the beginning, we need to know this not just about our salvation, but about our Christian life. Remember what Jesus said back in John chapter 12, unless a grain of wheat is buried and dies, it cannot bear much fruit. Jesus was talking about his suffering, but he was also talking about ours. It's why he goes on immediately after that comment to say, anyone who wants to save his life needs to lose it. Nothing makes the church of Jesus more unfruitful than an unwillingness to suffer and die, to sin, to self, and to this world. Uh, Do we believe this? Uh, Here's a great comment I came across this week. What if your life is the most fruitful, the most powerful, Not when everything is going right and we are on top of the world, but when our lives look the most like the life of Jesus on the cross. Do you believe that? What if our lives are the most fruitful and the most powerful when they look the most like the life of Jesus on the cross? A life of sacrifice and suffering. Uh, This is all over the Bible. We don't have time to look at them all. We're conformed to his death. We carry about in our bodies the dying of Christ. We enter the fellowship of his sufferings. I dare you to read five pages in the New Testament and not come across this somewhere in the epistles. Uh, If God is bearing fruit in the cross of Christ, he is bearing fruit in our sufferings also. We have to believe that about the Christian life. Uh, It just brings us down to this basic point. This is where I'll end this morning. What do you really want from Christianity? Uh, What do you really want as a follower of Jesus Christ? I think people want a lot of things. They want community. Uh, They want a moral compass for their kids. They want better relationships. Uh, They want a sense of personal fulfillment. None of those are bad things, by the way. But what about this? I want to be identified with this suffering, bleeding, dying man, no matter the cost. I want to be identified with the one who thirsted and gave up his spirit for me. I want to be identified with the blood and the water that flow from his side. Uh, Nothing else really matters. It's all finished right here. It's enough. Let's believe that and let's pray.